0: Today's scripture reading is found in Galatians three twenty-six 26-29. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We all have our Meccas and mine is Monterey. And this last weekend my family and I went to spiritual retreat there at the spiritual renaissance. It was a wonderful time. Some of you um, have accused me of using vocabulary in the past and our keynote speaker teaches uh... Or was a teacher at houston baptist college a guy by the name of uh... Oh, it's coming to blank out now lewis anyway he's a cs lewis expert and he talked so fast that i thought even if i took evelyn Wood's speed reading course i would never be able to read as fast as he talked it was like an auctioneer except it was huge theological terms and very fast concepts and so Anyway, if uh, I throw some things out there pretty loosely, it's just the content uh, spillover from the five minutes I spent listening and absorbing. No, it was a wonderful time. One of the things that came up in discussions of C.S. Lewis, and how many of you know who C.S. Lewis is? Please raise your hands. How many of you read C.S. Lewis, various works? C.S. Lewis was perhaps uh, the most influential churchman of this century, uh, an Anglican uh, medieval literature scholar, interestingly enough, and a a teacher, first at Oxford where he was underappreciated and finally at Cambridge where he spent the last 10 years of his career as a a full professor. Oxford never gave him full professorship, if you can imagine. Uh, Despite his talents and his genius, they were put off by the sort of populist writings of the Chronicles of Narnia, if you can imagine. So in talking about C.S. Lewis, one of the things that came up um, was his sort of model of atonement that the Chronicles of Narnia put forth in an allegorical sort of form. How many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia? Seen the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe at the theater? Home video? Uh, I'm going to get you one way or another. HBO, just trying to learn my audience. Uh, There we go. Well, it's a a fabulous series, fabulous book, fabulous film, um, and very, very powerfully put forward. And what you have, in essence, is Aslan the Great Lion, symbolic of Christ, who redeems, if you will, Edmund, one of the four peverences, uh, four children who have escaped from this world to another world called Narnia. And Edmund is a traitor. Edmund has listened to the wicked white witch. Edmund has tasted of the Turkish delight that she profures. It's he's the one who will betray the three and betray Aslan if he can, but there is a moment of redemption, and you see Aslan, the great lion, talking in a very somber way with with Edmund. And what Edmund does not know in his restoration, or maybe he does, and the rest of them certainly don't know in his restoration, is that the restoration is going to come at a tremendous cost, because the wicked White Witch has claim to everything in Narnia and claim to anyone who has ever acted in treachery. And so in treachery, Edmund has acted and her claim remains on him. And the spell that she has cast over Narnia is this. It is to always be winter, but never what? Christmas. Oh yes, you have read it. Always winter and never Christmas. And with Narnia, Aslan has been gone, absent from this frozen world for more than a 100 years. But people talk of Aslan's coming and the great hope they have in his arrival. And when he does come, the White Witch's curse begins to break and Narnia begins to thaw and spring begins to bloom. And in this story that Lewis writes, this story that mirrors so nicely uh, this part of the gospel, the wicked white witch is forced to march, not ride her sleigh, but march to Aslan's camp and demand Edmund's blood because he is a traitor. And when she cites the old magic that the blood of the traitor belongs to her, Aslan confirms this and says, "You are most correct." There is also a law that says, "The blood of one who is the blood of uh, the blood that is spilt of one who has committed no treachery is will substitute will suffice." Well, nobody knows what's happening, but Aslan, the great lion, gives himself over to evil. He is beaten and spat upon and shaved and plucked, and every kind of abuse is heaped upon him. And finally, he's tied and put on a great stone table, an altar, if you will, and sacrificed with the slitting of his throat by the great white witch, the wicked white witch. And he dies. And even the mice come and chew away the cords. And, of course, Susan and Lucy are there, and they're grieving and weeping. They've seen this horrible thing, and they, too, unloose him. And when the first rays of the sun come up in the morning, as the rays come across the stone table where he lays, the stone table cracks And Aslan the great lion is resurrected, his mane full and beautiful, his blood gone, and the ancient magic has been broken because there's an even deeper magic. The deeper magic says that, as I said earlier, when the blood of an innocent is shed. And love, it undoes death itself. It undoes death itself. Undoes. Not a word, thank you. I, when will this Bush administration end? I swear. <laughs> I have been corrupted. <sighs> okay. You'll just have to put up this till January 2009, I guess, or whatever. January 2009, there we go. Well, um, so much for making up word, uh, words. It's un- undone, basically. And Aslan will kill the great white witch. We'll bite her face off. Well, this story is a story of redemption, if you... Have been following it, you know it's not about uh, some fairy tale place far away, although it's a wonderfully woven story about Narnia and imagination and places of tremendous creativity. But the story is primarily about redemption. And you know, when we come to a time like this, and it's kind of a weird time, how many of you wondered why we sang Christmas songs today? Nobody wondered? Oh, three of you, okay. Well, for the three of you, I wondered too a little bit. Today is the 12th day of Christmas. Twelve drummers drumming. I'll be the Lord a leaping. There we go. <laughs> anyway, this is the 12th day of Christmas. So we're in this transitional season in which advent has come light is in the world all things are new and we have a new year time that we're celebrating and looking forward to and as it turns out with our church calendar uh... adventist church calendar the thirteenth sabbath calendar that's really the extent of the adventist church calendar isn't it am i right on that or have i missed something we have an offering calendar don't forget that but we have a thirteenth sabbath calendar we should have communion, at least. Uh, should have had it probably the 29th, but uh, that's an awkward time, so we're going to do that today. So we have this time of, of beginning, too. And as we think about communion and what it means, as we think about this gift that God has given us, it occurs to me that there are several things that go through people's minds, all based in Scripture. It occurs to me that we have different models of what it means to be saved represented in different passages of scripture and some uh, certainly uh, appeal to each of us individually more than others and some aspect of each theory offends somebody somewhere. Are you tracking with me on that? Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Let's just sort of do a quick review and then I'll try to illustrate those from scripture briefly. The first model of scripture our first model rather of of redemption, is literally based on that word redeemed or ransomed. So you have this notion that we were slaves or in captivity somehow or we have been taken by force by another that we don't naturally belong to. And we have been demanded a ransom of. That is to say there was a price on our head And Jesus paid that price, the ransom price, which turned out to be his blood, and ransomed or redeemed us from slavery, from sin, from death, if you will. And that is one of the the models that we're dealing with of salvation. What's another one? I know you know these. You've heard them all your lives. Throw another one out for me. Influence. We have the moral influence theory of salvation. This one is an interesting one, and I may mix this up a little bit with the exemplar, but if I do, bear with me. The moral influence theory says that Christ came really to do exactly that, morally influence us toward the good, to move us toward a, a new destination a new direction we were in sin and headed to destruction but moral influence says by his presence by the life he lives by his perfection were inspired to follow his example and go a new direction in life and live in life influenced and informed by the life of christ to the point of being perfect as our father in heaven is perfect and we will have texts that go that direction too There are some interesting uh, consequences to each of these theories I'll, I'll hit in just a minute. And I say theories because the Bible never really lays forth a clean, this is the one way it is. The Bible gives us different pictures or snapshots, all of which are true, all of which have some aspect of value or information or worth to them, directing us in some way toward the ultimate, which is our reunion with God. And yet each of these, um, we have to pull from various parts of Scripture. What's another one that you can think of? What's, what's Romans all about? Justification, right? For you have been justified by faith. What is justification? What is it on your computer screen in Microsoft Word alignment with the margins right you left justified center justified right justified depending on what you click there your paper's going to look very interesting or very funny right or, or very correct so we have this sort of sense of being in alignment justification is being brought back into alignment in some way correct we have very forensic models and, and not-so-forensic models of justification. The most popular one in the Adventist church is a very forensic model that I, I sort of grew up with of the court scene, the gavel, God the Father on the throne, uh, on the uh, bench there of the judgment room, Christ the advocate, Satan the, uh, the one accusing. And you have... Uh, Jesus pleading his blood, and justification is is never assumed. It's it's something that's derived. We have to prove it. There has to be a, a sort of investigation to verify that indeed justification of all of these transgressions has taken place. That's one model within that particular model. But justification in general just simply means that we moved out of alignment with God and Christ in his grace and mercy sent by the father brought us back into alignment. So these are some of the basic sort of atonement theories really. And in the end, they're all valuable and important. They all have consequences. And the most important question out of them is then how then shall we live? So before I get to the text, just, quickly hitting those I want to highlight some of the pros and cons of each of these that we've just mentioned in the ransom theory in the ransom theory it's dependent on a very particular notion isn't it of what sin is in the ransom theory sin isn't so much transgression of law as it is a place in which we have been taken it's a captivity. It's a kidnapping. The understanding of evil in this particular case is that our, uh, our lives have been hijacked against our wills in some ways and taken by another. And there's a certain truth to this, isn't there? We're all naturally predisposed to sin. We belong on the wrong side from birth. And yet the ransom theory to the pro side takes account of that fact and moves us from a place of captivity to a place of freedom in Christ the emphasis there then becomes a sort of new responsibility because if we are free in Christ and we've been freed indeed then we have a responsibility to live in that freedom and that's very hard for us to do by the way has anybody told you that? Explicitly, living in that freedom is very hard to do. In the moral influence theory, the challenge we come to, or actually, I want to back up on that one a little bit. Um, There are two sort of things I may be mixing up, or, or there's a variation of moral influence theory, Graham Maxwell's sort of thinking, that says it wasn't necessary for Christ to die at all. That happened as a consequence of politics. And nature, but in fact, we're moving into that uh, direction of Christ's likeness because of the nature of the kingdom that he brought, because of the generosity of God, because of the kindness of God. And what happens along the way that's awful and evil isn't God at all, it's simply the devil taking out his vengeance in the course of things. So, God himself is not the person who exacts vengeance on his own son for our sins. That's an accident of time, according to one aspect of the, the moral influence theory, which is another interesting possibility. So the one I said earlier, though, the sort of a, a modeling theory, really, of how Christ is a moral perfecter who comes and conquers sin, the upside of that is that we are called to a sanctification, right? We Are Are we called to become like Christ? That's what the Bible says, Yes. So, and Paul makes it clear that even in justification theory, and we'll get to that in Romans, just because you've been justified by grace doesn't mean you're free to go commit all manner of sin. Is that correct? Okay. So justification theory is definitely not antinomian. Um, But there is a sort of, and, and certainly the theory of influence is very, very close to nomianism. The idea is that Christ conquered sin, he conquered the law, he kept the whole law in a human state and therefore we too must do that and the consequence of that particular viewpoint is perfectionism. You're going to have to keep the law and the whole law on your own someday apart from the spirit in order to demonstrate that you are safe to save. And There are a lot of Adventists who've adopted that particular position. That has some very serious spiritual consequences as you might see from the implication I just gave. When we get to justification, the the implication there is interesting too. Are you you with me or have I lost you somewhere in all these theories? It's kind of complex. But the justification theory um, really depends on a view of the world that's increasingly challenged. So for all of you who are engaged with your minds and life and spirituality in the world, maybe you resonate with this the challenge of the justification theory is that it really depends on a a, a great controversy model quite frankly a notion of a God who created much as um, a, a world without imperfection without the consequence of sin roses had no thorns there was no predation of any kind Uh, life was meant to go on for perpetuity. The diet was one of complete sustainability. This is uh, a facet of our great controversy model. And this world in its Edenic state changes with the rebellion of humankind. And that rebellion must be met with the sacrifice of Christ who brings us back into alignment in his body and person and gift of life with God who then for all who believe in him that same justification applies and that becomes the group that is safe to save as we look forward to the advent of God again and the other challenge on that one is the delay of the parousia the delay of the second coming how long will we wait for the fulfillment of these promises and words is a challenge to us as we think about the meaning of Christ's coming and sacrifice and death. Is that too controversial? I like to be honest with you. You're such an educated group and so able to take in so many things. I I mean that in all sincerity. I really appreciate you as an audience because as a congregation, you you really do think through a lot of things and accept things uh as just presented and I I do appreciate that very much about you seriously Uh, some people take things way too personally so all those things said and there's a great deal of uh, biblical truth in, in more or less each of them the question comes down to how shall we live so let's just take a few minutes in scripture and survey this very briefly and get an idea. First of all, an easy place to find the um, influence theory is in 2 Corinthians 13. Just so you have a reference for that one if you want to look at this later. 2 Corinthians 13. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For, to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that the people we'll see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is for your perfection. That is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Just an implication, uh, a hint at, at what, Uh, Paul is after on the surface of things there. If we're looking for the justification uh, model, you can find that very strongly in Romans. That's a favorite of many of us, myself included, Uh, although Galatians is outstanding as well. Romans 1, 3, 5, 8, um, all there. Uh, The most classic passages come from 3, 4, and 5, and we don't have time to go through all of that, but a good uh, synopsis is in Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even then over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam, who was the pattern of one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass for if the many died by the trespass of one man how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man Jesus Christ overflow to the many. So you have this idea of Adam bringing in by his act and Christ counteracting by his act and the justification language is very strong in Romans 3 and 4. If we go to the uh, Luke chapter 4 Uh, Another type of influence theory is sort of hinted at here in reference to Isaiah 61. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach. And what has he anointed me to preach? good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to release the oppressed, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. This sort of social aspect of Jesus' teachings and the Beatitudes and prophesied in the Old Testament concerns of the prophets who were very concerned with justice and so forth is a very real part of our understanding of salvation and what it is that Jesus brought. So, having taken that lightning-fast walk, trot, run through some of these passages and ideas in this flight of, of biblical fancy, we come to the altar today, to the table, and we ask ourselves, how is it that we shall live? And our text read today... In Galatians three holds some clues. Galatians three twenty-six. I would suggest this is how we should live. three twenty-six. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, sons and daughters. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. So we're not going to live with distinctions. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now Paul runs into a very interesting argument in which he talks about how a child, even though he be the owner of everything, is still like a slave. Because he's subject to the estate rules. And he gives an illustration of Hagar and Sarah, the woman who bore Ishmael not of promise, and Sarah, the woman who bore Isaac of promise, in the difference that that makes. And in talking about the difference between the slave woman's plight and the free woman's plight, the difference between. Ishmael and Isaac he ends up in chapter 5 saying this it is for freedom that Christ has set us free so stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by slavery and then he gives us the most practical advice of all in 5:16 so i say this live by the spirit verse 22 For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful, sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit not becoming conceited, provoking or envying one another. Of course, there's a whole list I left out of of those things Paul is referring to as evils. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with a very certain hope that as we come to the table this afternoon, we come not as slaves or freemen, as males or females, we come as sons and daughters of god free in christ however you want to understand that and that that freedom enables us to choose a life that is completely different from a life ever lived by any of us before the new life is the life lived by the spirit which leads us into these things that are so counter the life of the flesh And however we want to understand sin today, however we want to understand righteousness, however we want to understand God's approach to his children, we can safely say today that we know we are children of light when we do those things that belong to the light. We know we are children of God when we live like children of God. And if we live by the Spirit together In this year to come, we will be living like children of God. I would like to dismiss you to wash one another's feet. The location of the various rooms are in your bulletin. We do have a woman's room, a men's room, and a family room or a couple's room. So you are free to uh, go at this time. Let us do what John 13 bids us to do, what Christ bids us to do. Wash one another's feet in humility and love and come back to the table ready to partake of his supper. Thank you.